We have been studying Romans all this fall. And today we are almost finishing the series. Next week, we're going to conclude with chapter 8. And then we're going to take a little break for the holidays, celebrate in an amazing way Christmas. And then when we come back, there will be the study on Romans 8, 9 until 16. But today is very particular because chapter 8 is giving us the hope that we need, the hope that we desire to have in the future that is promised to all of us. Imagine for a moment that you are in the biggest, more intimidated roller coaster that you can ever imagine. It's massive, and it looks like challenging, and it has a lot of twists and turns, and, and man, you, you're just in line, and you're thinking, what am I doing here? What am I thinking? You are afraid, your, your palms are sweating, and you, you're wondering, maybe, maybe I step back. But then you decided to get into that ride, and you let the, the fear somehow can be overcome for that mix of anticipation that is all over you. Now think for a moment. Think that the roller coaster is a metaphor for your life. Life, like any roller coaster, is filled with challenges. It's filled with tough times, unexpected turns, moments of surprises, moments that seem to be overwhelmingly difficult to endure. You might be scared and unsure if you can handle it, but I want you to consider this. Just as a roller coaster can be exciting, When you trust that it's secure, that it's safe, the same way, when you let the Holy Spirit guide your life, the Holy Spirit will transform you, will change your fears, will empower you in this journey of life filled with freedom, connection, and hope. And that's precisely the big idea of this sermon this morning. The Spirit lead us into a life free from the power of sin, a deep fellowship with God, and a firm hope in the glorious future that we have in Christ. In the heart of this letter of Romans, chapter 8 is like that shiny diamond that is set on the saddle. And this ring gold. Paul is telling us since chapter 6 and 7, explaining to us all the difficulties with the flesh, with the law, and everything that is impossible to accomplish in our own strength. But then we get to chapter 8, and we reach to a crescendo, to a hope of a promise that is given to us, that we are not enduring the situations in our life, the difficult times in our lives on our own strength. He is providing for us the Holy Spirit, His own power to help us to walk through these difficulties in life. When we get to the verses 12 
to 25 in Romans 8, we understand in this section that profound exposition of the Christian life under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's a sharp contrast with the bondage of sin and death that he referred in the last chapter. And he is reminding us the liberation that we have in that reality of life when we are walking by the Spirit. So as we embark on this enlightening journey together this morning, I will invite you to open your Bibles in Romans 8, verses 12 to 25. And together we're going to delve in ways in, in how the Holy Spirit helps us to walk. When He is leading, He is helping us to be free, to have fellowship, and to have a future. He's giving us freedom from the power of sin in our lives. Paul, in this section, is telling us that salvation is a gift from God and we can do nothing to earn it. We cannot pay it. We cannot win this salvation. It's just given to us by grace. Before we became believers, we became believers, we were dead in our sins. We were separated from God, and we were under His wrath. It's exactly what Paul has been telling us in the previous chapters in this beautiful letter. We were completely unable to earn His acceptance. Only through the mercy that He has for us. He sent His only Son, which, by the way, this is the beginning of the celebration of that wonderful promise. Sending his son to take our place in that place of torment, which is the cross. To die on our behalf. He loved us so much that he sent his son to die on our behalf. Through Christ's death, we were given an avenue to escape death and judgment. So our salvation was totally and completely handled by God. And this is the point that I want to make for you today because some people think that you need to do your own work to earn God's favor, to earn God's salvation. Even though you might not articulate it with your words, in your actions, is exactly what you're portraying. Everything, everything that we have, everything that we can do, We only can receive it by faith. Even though we're still in sinning state, God has declared you and me innocent, righteous. Not because we deserve it, just because he is using the innocence, the righteousness of his own son who died on the cross on our behalf, and he has been covering us with that. He has been exchanging our sin for the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. However, it's so sad that many people are still thinking that they need to do their own part in order to preserve, to protect that wonderful salvation that they have received. But the Lord has saved you, has saved us. And now is some way they think it's our job to keep it. We need to protect it. 
But the biblical view is that sanctification, exactly like justification, is a work of God. We are called to cooperate with him in this process, definitely, but we are never commanded to do that on ourselves. It's done. He did it for all of us. Since our role is to cooperate with him, how then we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit? How can we walk in the Spirit? How can we be led by the Spirit? I'm glad you asked, because I have answers for you. And the first one is that we have an obligation. This is what we find in verse 12. But it's not an obligation to indulge the flesh, but to live in the Spirit. Having the Holy Spirit in us is being connected with God, is receiving His wisdom to His Word. But before our salvation, all humans were slaves to the flesh. Paul says in verse 12, So then, brethren, he's talking about Christians, he's talking about sons and daughters, he's talking about brothers and sisters. We are, he says, under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, but if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. The word obligation in the original Greek is actually the word for debtor. You owe a debt. You have an obligation to your, the person who loaned you some money. That's your obligation. You are a debtor. Paul is using this word to announce that we are no longer debtors to the flesh. We are no longer loyal to the flesh. We now need to be debtors to the one who paid our debt in full, which is Jesus Christ. So we're free. We're free from the lifestyle of emptiness and death and completely contrary to the way of the spirit of life. We now have the ability to pursue God and to live in a manner worthy of our calling that he has been calling. So you are free but not just to disobey. Not, not, not only you're free from that oppression from sin in your life, but you're free to obey God. Nothing is stopping you to do that. So we have no obligation with the flesh, but we have an obligation with God to live by the Spirit. In verse 13, in the second part, it says, But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What, what is he talking about when he's talking about death? In this context, it's not a physical death. It's, it's not about losing your salvation. It is the loss of the communion, the intimate fellowship that you have with God when you commit a sin. We have to rely on our own strength instead of the strength that the Spirit gives us. So this death is what happened in that spiritual disconnection that we might have with God when we are not walking the way that he expects us to walk. Not walking on the flesh, but walking in the spirit. There is an obligation that we have. We need to mortify, according to the early church fathers, mortify the flesh. 
We cannot kill him, but we can stop feeding her. And that way, it weakens. And that way, our walk in the Spirit can be strengthened. So what does it mean in particularly? We need to be obedient to him. We need to be obedient to God. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to do that. It's not based on your works, even if the Holy Spirit is the only one that you are inviting to work in and through you. Remember the last time that we were talking about that when you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that event happened only one time in your life at the moment that you trusted in Christ as your Savior. That's it. You don't have to invite Him every time, every weekend, every Sunday. He's already living in you. What you need to ask Him is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which means you are need to yield your control on Him of your own life. It's less who you are and more what He is in you and what He wants to accomplish through you. That's what is walking in the Spirit. So it's important to understand this because this is an, an, an aspect. You are free from sin, from the power of sin, even though you are in this world and you continue living in this flesh, the old sin is still there, the old nature is still there. You just need to every day make a decision, conscious decision, walking in obedience to the Spirit of God. So freedom from sin's power. Second, we have a deep fellowship with God. And this is the second thing that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Not only liberate us from that influence of sin, but now it's allowing us to go deeper in our relationship with Him, with Christ. In Romans 14 to 17, Paul is moving from focusing on what the believers should avoid to the positive aspect of living in the Spirit. Highlighting several key benefits. At least three we're going we're gonna to mention today. The first one is that we have been adopted as sons of God. We have been adopted as sons of God. Verse 14 says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. This term, being led, is often misunderstood. Sometimes we are thinking, oh, God is leading me to do that. Oh, I feel led by God doing this. It's not in reference to God's will in this particular passage. Paul is really talking about a deeper walking in the Spirit. He means that living a life influenced and shaped by the Holy Spirit in his guidance. You need to be led in the Holy Spirit to drive your life, if you put it this way. The Greek word for led can be translated to lead by laying hold of. And the image, the picture, mental picture here is imagine an, an animal who, who is being carried or pulled by force. In some ways, forces to walk. This illustrates how the Holy Spirit gently guides us along the way in the Christian journey that we have. It's not about forcing you, but it's in some way guiding you. This identity that he mentioned here in verse 4, when he says sons of God, is a very interesting term that you need to pay attention. Because it not necessarily means male sons, but it's talking about the privilege of the status of being part of God's family. 
In Roman culture, for instance, Paul, when he's talking about that audience, they were Romans, so they understood this concept about being adopted sons. Because these children were enjoying the same rights of the biological children. Biological children. Similarly, we as believers, whether male or female, were given the full rights and blessings of God's children. Paul continues in verse 15, talking about the same concept. He says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I don't want to rain in your parade because I know you heard many times saying that when you hear the word Abba, that's an intimate term and equals like saying Daddy. That's not right. I'm sorry. In other way, Paul is talking to a people who probably is multilingual. He's using an Aramaic term, which is very common for a child to call his or her father Abba. And then he provides a translation. Abba means father. Let me do an example for you. In Spanish, padre. Padre, Father. Paul is teaching to the audience who doesn't know Aramaic, Abba means Father. What is remarkable about this? Not only the intimacy is, is remarkable because the only person in the entire Bible who was able to call God Father was Jesus Christ was the only one. That was exactly what many of the Pharisees couldn't, couldn't resist when they were listening to, to, to Jesus Christ praying and talking about God the Father as Father. It, it was remarkable. And Paul is saying the same thing here. He's calling God the Father, Abba, Father. It was a term of respect used by children and adults. The term father is used 15 times in the Old Testament, but is never, never used in reference to God the Father. Only Jesus was able to do it. God is our Father. You and I have been adopted by Him through Jesus Christ. This notion of adoption is really powerful. In Roman society, an adopted person will lose all the rights of their previous family if he or she has one. And will gain all the rights as a legitimate child in the new family. In the same way, becoming a Christian means that we gain all the privileges and responsibilities of a child in God's family. One of these privileges is to be led by the Spirit. G.I. Packer, one of the Christian authors, has a wonderful book entitled Knowing God. He says this about adoption. Adoption into God's family is the highest privilege offered by the gospel, even greater than justification. Being right with God is wonderful, but being loved and cared by God as a father is even more profound. 
I agree with him. You know, I don't have the blessing or privilege to be a biological father. But my wife and I, we decided to adopt a son. And I don't know how you feel, you who are biological parents. I don't know how much do you love your children. But it's the love that my wife and I have for our child. You had that strong love? Oh, my goodness. We don't see the difference. We love our child. We see him, and even though he doesn't look like us, for us, he's exactly like us. Every single week, there is something that I discovered that he is more like her mother, his mother, in a good way. He's determined, strong will. My wife has an endowment term, it's mulita, which is a mule. <laughs> Don't be, it's not offensive, it's between her and my. Now I have mulito. It's way complete in the family. But what I'm trying to explain to you is that this is the situation. Our love for this boy is so much that I cannot imagine what could be the love for our biological son. We see no difference. I see him with his Chinese eyes, and I see myself in him every single day. And sometimes he is duplicating what I'm doing. That's a scary thing, by the way. So we have been adopted by God. And, and he is so joyful. In Ephesians 1.5, he says that being adopted by him, it brings joy to his heart. So he, that, do you feel that God loves you? Do you think God loves you more than Jesus Christ? You better say, maybe equal. <laughs> and that's how God makes us feel. Loved. I never, never understand this term of adoption until we became adoptive parents. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, that love is amazing. And that makes me feel more privileged and blessed when I read something like this to see how great love God has for all of us, that he can call us his children. Amen. As believers, we are part of God's eternal family. He has adopted us through the faith that we have in Jesus. And this adoption is not just a status. It's an invitation to rely on the Holy Spirit as a source of power and guidance in our daily life. This is a blessing. And the second blessing that we have here is that we have been made children of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So Paul is telling us here something interestingly. He's changing from sons, sons and daughters, to children. This change signifies that the Holy Spirit collaborates with our own spirit to affirm our identity as God's children. He's telling us, not only he adopted you, you are his son. You are his daughter. The Holy Spirit validates and, play our, and places us into God's family. This verse speaks about objective truth and subjective experience. 
Objectively, if you have faith in Christ, you are undoubtedly a child of God, regardless of your current spiritual state. And subjectively, when you live in alignment with the Spirit, you can feel a deeper sense of being in God's favor. It's as if the Holy Spirit is acknowledging and rejoices in your presence. You have children. When they behave, you are content. You are happy. You say, that's my boy. That's my daughter. Imagine God saying, every time that we're walking in obedience, says, that's my boy. That's my daughter. And favor, he rejoices in that way. The Holy Spirit's presence within us confirms our new birth in God's family. However, it's common, especially for new believers, to struggle with this concept, with doubts about belonging to God's family because they are not behaving all the time as they're supposed to. And the enemy, Satan, often tries to, to cause battles in their minds thinking, you see, you see what you did? That shows that you're not sincere. You, you might not be a, in good favor with God. So the Holy Spirit is telling us, regardless how you're behaving, you are a daughter of God. Regardless of what you just did yesterday, you still are a son of God. And this is the guarantee that we have in him. And this is a relief. This is a freedom that we can say that we recognize our sins and we confess it. And the one who can condemn us decided not to and forgive us. So we have been adopted, we have made children of God, and guess what? Verse 17, we have been made heirs of God. I'm so glad that I learned how to pronounce the word because I used to hate heirs of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him and that we may also be glorified with him. This verse reveals a profound truth about the relationship that God has with Christ. As God's children, we are not just part of his family. We also are heirs to the kingdom of God. Isn't that amazing? And we don't deserve it. This is a prerogative of God. He wanted to do it. And he's sending his spirit to live in us to remind us of this wonderful truth. However, this heirship comes with a significant aspect. We will experience suffering in this life exactly or as much as Christ did. That's part of the inheritance that we receive. Suffering is normal for the child of God. You just cannot avoid it. It's part of the process. It's the other side of the blessing. It's the other side of the coin. Suffering is normal. James tells us, remember, rejoice when you are facing difficulties and trials. Not for them, but when you are in the middle because you are no no who is with you to help you to go through those difficulties and trials because you are a child of God. So this suffering is very integral part of a Christian journey. And we want to continue working out with this part of the sanctification process uh, until we get to the promise of glorification when we are in the face of, in front of God forever. So it's important to understand the nature of heirship. 
while being heirs of God is unconditional, stemming from the adoption that we have into God's family, that is another aspect of inheritance linked to this. Honor. The honor and glorification that we receive from Christ by enduring worship and hardships. The term glorified here in this context means being honored. Each time that we glorify God, we honor him. But at the same time, Jesus honors us when we bear our own trials well. When we learn to suffer well with a purpose, with a growth. Romans 8, 17 is teaching us about the dual aspect of our inheritance as God's children. Unconditional inheritance in God's family. We're going to suffer, but we're going to be honored by the suffering. And lastly, we have a future filled with hope. In the remaining verses, verses 18 to 25, we can see this Christian journey being compared with the experiences of our pregnant women in childbirth. Just as the pregnancy involves a lot of discomfort and feelings of heaviness, have you ever seen a, a woman who is almost, almost a few hours or a, a, a day before is giving birth? You know how she walks? I mean, we, we have so much compassion for that woman. You know, very can move. Not only she has a big belly, but also everything hurts. So, but there is a groaning and a longing for something. It's suffering. But we keep her going is what will happen when the baby is on her arms. That's what Paul is trying to explain to us here when he's saying that even our sufferings in the present time are not compared with the glory or the hope that we have in the future. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings in the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing when he was talking about Jesus. says, you know what? Because he was able to endure the cross, the pain, the suffering, because he was looking beyond that to what would happen when he resurrected. So in this verse, we, we, we have a few words interesting. For, for instance, is connected to the idea of suffering and glory. In our current sufferings and the future glory that await us, we can endure it. That's why Paul is saying, consider. And this is a, a term, an accountable term. Just take this in account. Count it. Consider. Logizomai. The word suggests that Paul is encouraging us to think deeply. Imagine a scale. You see all the sufferings. One, two, three. But at the same time, you see what happened in the future glory. One, two, three. 300. He always await our sufferings, what we know that is coming, if we endure it. To put it another way, you can pull up the difficulties in your life on one side of the scale, and the glory that will someday will be revealed when we resurrect from the dead. The suffering will always be a grain of sand in comparison to the Mount Everest. So I'm confident that you understand this principle. So you who are attending college or a graduate school, you who are spending countless hours and thousands of dollars to earn a degree, 
that your hope will help you in the future vocation. You know that someday, somehow you will finish and that keep you going. Maybe you are working two jobs right now. You want to make the necessary sacrifices to allow your spouse to be able to remain at home. Perhaps you are homeschooling your children. You believe that as a parent, you may be the best teacher in your, to your children and, and you want to invest further in the energy of them, but it's not easy. It doesn't pay attention to you, but you endure, you keep going because you know what will happen later. Likewise, when we focus on the future glory, we're focusing on what is coming. And that helps us to see the problems that we have today, the trials that we're facing today, and it starts changing our perspective. So from now on, instead of telling to your problems, instead of telling to God, I'm sorry, oh God, look how big my problems are, you can look to your problems and say, oh problems, how big my God is. And that changes your perspective because there is no problem as big as your God. So, Paul is changing the imagery because saying the same way that you're longing for that to happen, creation is also subject to the same thing. Verse 19, for the angels longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the Son of God, sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that when the creation itself also will be set free from the slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that we, with the whole creation, groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Paul is saying that because of the fallen man, the whole creation suffered. And the creation is longing and groaning. It's waiting for the time that also the creation will be redeemed. As a matter of fact, when you and I pass in this life and we are recreated, we have the new bodies, we need a place to live. So the Lord is thinking about that in the new earth, in the new earth, in the new heavens. The creation one day will be what it's supposed to be, what was originally intended to. That's what Paul is saying in this. And why he's saying that? Because in verse 23, he's giving us the Spirit as the premise. He's giving us the Spirit as the first fruits of what will happen. And not only this, but also ourselves, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is the first fruits. That warranty that what the Lord will accomplish one day is starting to happen. We ourselves grown with ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Wait a minute. We were adopted. And he's talking about adoption. When my wife and I, and I receive the picture of our son, we look at it and we pray and they say, this is our son. It took us a long time to go and get him to bring us with us. But we know he was our son. When we start signing those papers, when we start getting that process, we knew that we already have a son. We were writing letters. My wife was putting pictures together. We were sending staff all the way to China. And he was receiving that. He was a baby, but he was looking at the pictures so he recognized his family, his new family, forever family. And you cannot imagine, I don't know how many months, maybe close to nine months or something, we were waiting for the moment that we can go and get him. This is the imagery here. You know, he is our son. 
He was also honored, but he was not with us. We were longing for the time that that reunion to happen. And Paul is saying, right now you are seen in the here and now, you are adopted. But in the future, your adoption will be complete. And the joy will be amazingly. So the Holy Spirit is the first fruit. But if we hope for what we don't see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Paul is shifting here from a personal to an experience of a longing hope. And this is the hope that I want to emphasize to you this morning. Because this is the hope that we're going to start celebrating in this Christmas season. Because we're hoping that the promise will be fulfilled. Paul likens the hope like a farming, farmer's first fruit in the Old Testament which represented both by a sample of the harvest yet to come and a reminder of God's ownership overall. Paul's message in these verses is that, well, we are currently experiencing a lot of stress, a lot of problems, a lot of difficulties, including the sufferings and the limitations of these early bodies that may sometimes cause distress. They also serve as a significant purpose. They remind us and make us long for our eternal home with him, where we will be fully redeemed and transformed. This perspective, looking forward to the promised future, change how we view our current present. As we conclude our journey through Romans 8, 18, and 25, let's reflect on that. A future filled we hope amid the present trials. We have been likened our Christian walk to our pregnancy and childbirth, recognizing the discomforts, the burdens, but also anticipating the immense joy and glory that await us. So we wrap this conversation. Let's go back to the idea original with the roller coaster. We talk about this scary thing at first, with the twists and turns, but it ends up being the ride that we remember with joy. It's a lot, a lot like our life with Christ. Full of challenges, but full of moments that take our breath away. So I'm going to give you some assignments to do. Four things that you can remember. This is the action plan for you. Are you ready? Number one, pray during those climbs. Pray during those Times that you are going up a hill. During challenging times, turn to prayer. Open your heart to God. Seek His guidance and draw strength from His presence. Prayer acts like a spiritual force propelling you to a life's steep inclinations. Number two, dive into the scripture and into the community during the descents. When life speeds up like a roller coaster, rapid descent, anchor yourself in the Word of God. Anchor yourself in the Christian community that you have at church. This is, this is like your spiritual seatbelt, offering you security in God's truth. Share your journey with others. Their companionship can provide you the comfort that you need. Like we say at the beginning, in Midtown, nobody walks alone. Just remember that. Nobody suffers alone. Nobody rejoices alone. 
you have someone to walk alongside with you. Number three, worship in the calm moments. In life, quieter faces, much like a serene view from the roller coaster peak, engage in worship. This can be brought a song, a prayer, a poem, something that acknowledges you, that you acknowledge that God is with you at that moment, that His unwavering presence is with you. And lastly, number four, embrace God's love. Accept it, embrace it, enjoy it. Remember the depth of God's love for you. It's the foundation of your life roller coaster. Strong, secure, reliable. With the certainty that God's love, you can now navigate every twist and every turn and have the courage and the hope. So we ponder in this powerful message in Romans 8, 12 to 25, which speak about a life led by the Spirit. Remember that He gives you freedom from sin and hope for a glorious future. This is a season that reminds us about this expression of love. God's love and the hope that was born in the manger in Bethlehem. In this hope manifested in the birth of Jesus is that we find the true meaning of being transformed in Christ's image. The hope of Christmas is not just about celebrating the historical event. It's about embracing the presence of God with us every single day. God with us in Hebrew is Emmanuel. Every day transforming our lives in the most profound ways. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Well, we worship this beautiful song that is entitled Emmanuel. Let these words that you're going to be singing to be the words of the message that you're receiving today. These beautiful words are the last words that are actually modern in our lives. Because they tell us about the long-awaited arrival of a king of Bethlehem. The light that breaks through the darkness of a silent age. It speaks about the journey, the both long and arduous, yet filled with anticipation and joy, leading the hollow manger grown to the hope we was born. This song encapsulates exactly this sermon that we studied together today in Romans 8, 12 to 25. And with that in mind, I will ask you to stand and worship the Lord. And let me pray for you while you are standing. Heavenly Father, we come before you with a heart full of gratitude today. Your unwavering faithfulness and fulfillment of your promise of Emmanuel is overwhelming. Thank you, Father, because in the fullness of time, you sent your Son to live among us, a testament to your love and grace. Lord, we thank you for, for your son, Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, who walked on this earth, experienced our struggles, and bore our burdens. Through him, you show us the depth of your compassion and the reality of your presence 
in our lives. In moments of hardship, Father, help us remember that the groanings of creation are eagerly awaiting the redemption. We are comforted by the knowledge that you are with us. Your spirit is a gift given to us as the first fruit on what, what to come. It will serve us as a constant reminder of the hope and glory that await us. And as we navigate these highs and lows and early problems in this journey of life, help us to cling on hope of the future, the redemption, the restoration of all creation. Teach us, Father, to trust your plans, even though when we don't know, Father, that you are acting around us. We are humbled, Father, by the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, who brought hope and salvation to the world. May we live each day in light of that truth, embodying and living it, that love and that peace, so others can read in us the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guide us, Lord. Let us be bearers of light and hope to those around us, sharing that joy that you're giving us. And thank you, Father, for the gift of Emmanuel, God with us. And it's precisely in his name, in Jesus Christ, that we pray. And everybody says, Amen.